Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Since their mother's death, Tip and Teddy Doyle have been raised by their loving, possessive, and ambitious father. As the former mayor of Boston, Bernard Doyle wants to see his sons in politics, a dream the boys have never shared. But when an argument in a blinding New England snowstorm inadvertently causes an accident that involves a stranger and her child, all Bernard cares about is his ability to keep his children, all his children, safe. That's the plot in brief of Ann Patchett's book, Run. And uh, we are going to revisit a conversation from uh, 2010 on the occasion of the paperback release of Run. Ann Patchett is author of seven novels, including The Patron Saint of Liars, The Magician's Assistant, and Bel Canto, along with Run. Uh, she has written three books of nonfiction, Truth and Beauty, about her friendship with the writer Lucy Greeley, What Now?, an expansion of her graduation dress, Sarah Lawrence, and This is the Story of a Happy Marriage, a collection of essays examining the theme of commitment. In 2019, she published her first children's book, Lambslide, illustrated by Robin Priest Glasser. Here now, my conversation from 2010 with Ann Patchett. Maybe we could begin with, and of course I want to talk about uh, Run and uh, some of the themes in the latest novel, but I was fascinated by an article that you have on your website, which by the way is annpatchett.com, My Life in Sales. It's an article for the Atlantic Monthly, kind of a glimpse into the author's life. Of course, we go to book readings and signings, uh, line up for our favorite author, and this is an interesting look inside the life for the author. And uh, you start this out, uh, a conversation with Alan Gurganis and uh, Clyde Edgerton. Alan Gurganis said, the only thing worse than going on a book tour is not going on a book tour. I guess that's how you feel? Uh, It's my mantra. I don't know if it's how I feel, but it's how I make myself feel. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Book tour is really hard, and I spend a lot of my energy putting a positive spin on it. And a big part of that is reminding myself that there are a lot of writers out there who don't get to go on book tour, who'd kill to go on book tour, because it is a chance to promote and support your book. Um, I've just been doing this for a long time, and you wake up in Cleveland or Akron again in another hotel, and you think, I can't possibly go to another bookstore. So it's very important to work on being positive about it. My heart went out to the young Ann Paget. Uh, you were touring for your first book, <laughs> and you talk about, you encounter the uh, clerk, you say, I'm the 7 o'clock author, and you both know no one's coming. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And th- it happens night after night. I mean, that was twenty twenty five cities. They don't do that to young authors anymore. I mean, it used to be they'd just kind of give you a couple thousand bucks and set you out in your car, and they'd schedule it for you. But I don't know why someone would come to a bookstore on a Tuesday night to see somebody they had never heard of before. But the idea was if you go and make friends with the people in the bookstores, and this was the days of the independent booksellers where you really could make those connections, then those people would read your book and they would hand sell it and it would be worth your while. But it was depressing. And your publishers told you that uh, even if you don't have anybody come, if you're nice to the booksellers, they'll then push the book. Right. And back in those days, I wrote a lot for Bridal Guide, and there was inevitably a young woman who worked in the store who was getting married, and I would spend an hour and a half helping her with her bridesmaids' dresses or talking about the floral arrangements or whatever. I mean, I, I, was, I made myself useful in the time that I was in the store. I just I didn't sell books. I can remember there were nights I gift-wrapped in those bookstores because... <laughs> 
when I was in high school, I had been a gift wrap girl. So I would always say, well, if, you know, if you want me to do something, I could go wrap your packages for you. <laughs> and I guess tips to young authors on tours, McDonald's have the best bathrooms. Yes, it's true. It's true. Um, I don't eat the food, but they always have really clean bathrooms. Then you say that uh, the people you encounter are the people who loved your last book, the one before the one you're on tour for. Absolutely. Oh, that's that's so true. In fact, when Run came out, that was a huge book tour for me because my big book was Belcanto, the book before Run. So when I was out on book tour for Run, all the Belcanto people came out. Um, another, I guess, a clearer example is Liz Gilbert is a friend of mine who wrote Eat, Pray, Love, and she just went on book tour for her new book, Committed, and so, you know, countless thousands of Eat, Pray, Love people came to the store, and she said a lot of them didn't buy the new book. They just stood in line for three hours to tell her how much they loved Eat, Pray, Love. And you write, interestingly, in this uh, essay, that uh, it, maybe this is a flawed premise, sending authors out, because anyone who can uh, type into the void for uh, day after day, year after year, maybe isn't the one to send out, although you know a lot of authors have uh, good speaking skills. Uh, you write, you're one of them. Um, <laughs> but um, reading is a private act. I think it is. I, I, am, I have benefited enormously from book clubs and from the resurgence of book clubs in this country. Um, but personally, I can't imagine going to a book club. I, I don't think of reading as something that you do with a group of people or even getting together to discuss a book. I realize in a book club you don't sit there and read the book together. Um, but to me, the relationship that one has with a book and the interpretations that you gain from reading the book are very private and very much your own. I don't like the idea that in comes the author who has the right answer. So when people are in the audience and they raise their hand and they say to me, well, what happened to this character or this character after the story is over? I always say that's your responsibility. Now you have enough information that your imagination needs to engage and take the story forward. I don't know any more than the reader knows what happened to those people. Do you have readers who push back on that, who say they want your interpretation? Um, you know, when you're the one standing on stage and you have the microphone, you have a lot of authority. It's, it's mm. really like being the school teacher. So if you tell them firmly, this is the way it is, you have to figure it out. They may not love it, but I think they're going to take my word for it. And I'm sure that you've noticed, especially if you're, as you're, the, the lines to your book signings have gotten bigger, uh, there is something. People want to come out and meet the author. There's, they want to have a connection with the author. They do. And again, it's <laughs> even though I have been fully participating in this for almost 20 years now, it's not something that I really understand. And I think that there's such a cult of personality in this country. I mean, it, it's not enough that we either like or dislike Angelina Jolie's movies. We have to know what she ate for breakfast, and we have to see a picture of her without her makeup on. Um, I kind of like the idea of the artist being represented by their art. I am actually not a particularly interesting person. I have a kind of a dull life. I stay home a lot. The very best that I have to offer is in my books, and chances are the person has that book in their hand. Meeting me 
doesn't improve the book. Now, I'm really listening to what I'm saying, thinking I'm doing this interview so that people will come and hear me give <laughs> right, a talk. Right. So I should probably uh, I should probably rethink some of this. Meeting me can be a charming experience, but I don't read Dickens novels. I don't read Jane Austen novels and think, oh, if only I could have met them, if only I could have heard what... Jane Austen thought about those characters, the book would be better for me. But you write an experience. You understand it from the other side of a signing you went to with Eudora Welty. That's true. Now, I was 16 years old. It was a long time ago, but that was very, very important to me. I was a huge fan of Eudora Welty's, and it was the first reading I ever went to. She came to Vanderbilt. I live in Nashville, and I got there early, and I sat in the front row, and also... I remember the morning that she died, uh, hearing it on NPR, and I immediately, as soon as I heard that she had died, I went and got a black dress out of my closet and got in my car, and I drove to Jackson, Mississippi, which is about six hours away, because I wanted to go to her funeral, or I wanted to stand outside the church where her funeral was going to be if I couldn't get in, because I wanted to pay that tribute to her. She was very important to me. Was Eudora Welty an influence? You know, in a very funny way, yes. My work isn't in any way like Eudora Welty's, but Eudora Welty spent her whole life in Jackson, Mississippi. She pretty much spent her whole life in one house. She she was born in a house, and then her parents moved about two blocks away when she was 12 years old. And that house that she moved to at 12, she stayed in until she died in her 90s and she wrote in her bedroom her entire life. And I think as somebody who moved back to the kind of boring town I grew up in, which is Nashville, I had a lot of identification with Eudora Welty. I thought that I was going to live in New York and Paris and be an exciting person when I was a young woman. But in fact, I came home and I just, you know, plied my craft. And that in fact... We work from imagination. We don't necessarily work from experience, and that's the way in which Eudora Welty was an influence on me. And just one more thing from this essay, which, again, I found uh, fascinating, a glimpse into that life. This is how you close your essay, an extraordinary experience with a young woman who was very much influenced by your works and the extent to which she and her mother went to to come to your book signing. It's true. That was at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., and a, a woman and her daughter and the daughter... I can't remember, maybe 14, give or take, um, were at the end of the line, and it was a very long line. I had been signing for hours, and they said that they were going to now drive home all night to get back, and I was the daughter's favorite author. The daughter really couldn't speak to me, and that she just wanted to meet me. And I, I had a sort of crushing thought of, oh, I, I am the Eudora Welty to this girl, um, and wishing I could be better, um, wishing I could be Eudora Welty for her, wishing, I remember, wishing I had something that I could give her that was more than just a book, you know, wishing I had, like, a beautiful ring on my hand that I could have pulled off and given to her, because I was so moved by the idea that they had driven all day, she'd taken off from school, and now they would drive all night to go home. I think I remember that this girl wanted to be a writer. So. Yes. Yes, she did. So I guess that could be a great compliment to you if she becomes a writer and uh, continues with that. Absolutely.
We're talking with Ann Patchett on Access Utah today, spending the entire hour with her, author most recently of the novel Run. She's author of Belcanto and other novels, also a well-received memoir, and most recently a work based on a commencement speech. It's called What Now? And that is out as well. We'll have more with Ann Patchett following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and USU's Master of Second Language Teaching Program, accepting applications throughout the year and offering evening classes to part- and full-time graduate students. Funding available on a competitive basis. For more information, visit mslt.usu.edu. The Utah Debate Commission has organized debates for candidates for all of Utah's congressional districts, as well as for candidates for governor and attorney general. UPR is broadcasting all of these. And the next debate up features candidates for Utah governor. The Democratic candidate, University of Utah law professor Chris Peterson, will debate the Republican candidate, Utah Lieutenant Governor Spencer Cox, on Tuesday evening at 6. And we hope you'll keep listening after that debate for the first presidential debate, which follows immediately after. It all begins Tuesday evening at 6 here on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utime. Tom Williams. Uh, we are revisiting a conversation with the wonderful writer Ann Patchett. This is from 2010 on the occasion of the paperback release of her uh, novel Run. Ann Patchett, of course, is the author of several novels, including Patron Saint of Liars, The Magician's Assistant, Bel Canto, State of Wonder, and Commonwealth. And uh, you can find her at uh, annpatchett.com. Here's more of my conversation with Ann Patchett. Run is out in paperback. And here's the blurb. Since their mother's death, Tip and Teddy Doyle have been raised by their loving, possessive, and ambitious father. As the former mayor of Boston, Bernard Doyle wants to see his sons in politics, a dream the boys have never shared. But when an argument in a blinding New England snowstorm inadvertently causes an accident that involves a stranger and her child, all Bernard cares about is his ability to keep his children, all of his children, safe. And there are many surprises uh, in the book. The, the title is Run. So the themes of this book, um, race, class, family issues, politics, any of those stand out most to you? Well, um, I think that this is a book that's a lot more about class than it is race. I think it is, to my mind, a book that's very much about politics, although most people who have read it have said, oh, no, it's a book about family. Um, But I think that, for me, it's the way in which all small things, all the small decisions that we make in our life become political decisions, who we take care of, who we look after, uh, how we behave in our community in a very small way reflects a larger sense of who we are politically. And so I think that this book plays out a lot of those scenarios. And a theme running through the book is inherited dreams. There are a couple of levels there. This is a political family, or at least Doyle wants this to be a political family, wants his sons to carry on the tradition. Did you have any specific political families in mind? Well, you know, it's hard to write a book about a father who wants his son to carry out his dreams and not think about the Kennedys, and certainly this is a connection to that. Um, I am fascinated by Joe Kennedy and 
really, really enjoyed Doris Kearns Goodwin's book about that family called the Fitzgeralds and the Kennedys. And Joe Kennedy had four sons, and it was like he just threw them out like baseballs. And and his great dream was that his son, Joe Jr., would be president. And Joe Jr., of course, was killed in World War II. And when he was killed, then he just turned his attention to Jack. And when Jack was killed, then Bobby was going to do it. And when Bobby was killed, he, you know, got to Teddy. And that was amazing. The obedience of the sons in trying to fulfill their father's dreams, the power of the father, all of those archetypes were very interesting to me. And so I thought, what would it be like if you had a father who wanted to do this and he couldn't? Because I think that in present day, that would be very, very hard to pull off, that a father would really control the family in such a tight way. So Bernard Doyle, who is a good, smart man and a loving father, believes that his sons, who have been extremely privileged, have a debt to society. People who have received so much should give something back. The sons, who are loving, good, smart people, have no intention of being politicians. They want to be what they want to be, which is in one case, one son wants to be an ichthyologist. He's studying fish at Harvard, and his father sees this as a terrible waste of time and intelligence. And then there's another son who wants to be a Catholic priest, which he, the father is a Catholic, but he finds it appalling to think that his good, smart son would want to throw his life away in the church. So it's about trying to live within other people's expectations and finding our own ways, and I think that in very subtle ways we all do that within our families. Your uh, research on Joe Kennedy, fascinating to my reading of a few uh, interviews, one in which you talk about how Joe Kennedy, when the son would walk into the room, you tell the daughter to stand up and give your brother the seat. Yes, yes. That, I, I'm glad you brought that up because I had forgotten that, but it's a fabulous line. Stand up and give your brother a chair, was what he always said to the girls. And I have read in several places that, in fact, Ethel was the great political mind of that family and was the one who, no doubt, would have been most qualified to be president. But the girls weren't Raised, and it wasn't the time in this country for girls to dream about being the president. So that was another thing that I wanted to do. The reason why it's so much fun to write novels as opposed to writing nonfiction is you can look at the things in history that bother you and set them to write in order to please yourself. And so in this book, in which the father has three sons, suddenly a little girl appears and the family is kind of stuck with her and they find out that they have connections to her, and she shows tremendous bright promise that perhaps the boys didn't have. And suddenly there is the hope that maybe the girl could fulfill the expectations of the father. The Kennedy is very patriarchal. You're wanting to maybe have a, a matriarchy, at least the lines are passed down through the, the women. Well... There's an interesting parallel running through this book in that it seems to be a book that's all about fathers and sons, but in fact there is a strong line of a matriarchy going through the book in that the story starts with a statue 
that uh, the mother, who is dead when the story begins, but the mother inherited a statue that's been in her family for many generations, and it's handed down from mother to daughter all the way back to Ireland. And, um, and now there is no daughter, and these boys all want the statue. In fact, the book begins with the sisters of the dead mother showing up, wanting the statue back. Yes, yes. And those two sisters, this is a great story, those two sisters only appear in about the first three or four pages of the book. And when this book was published in hardback, um, it got a huge full-page review in People magazine, and it's, the review said, this book makes no sense. It's a story of two sisters trying to reclaim a statue that was their rightful inheritance, and then the sisters disappear, and they never come back, and I waited for them the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, well, if that's what you thought the book was about, you just can't argue with that. <laughs> yeah. I guess that opening sets the things in motion. Yes. Is, is what yes. you were, where you were going with that. We're talking with Ann Patchett, uh, author most recently of Run, also author of Bel Canto, other novels, memoir, new book called What Now, based on our uh, well-received commencement address to uh, Sarah Lawrence. The author's website is annpatchett.com. And in fact, this is another inheritance, is it not? The wife, Bernadette, who Doyle loves, uh, she's the one who wanted to adopt these sons. When she's gone, then he has to carry forward. That's the way it works, I understand. If you have children or you adopt children, and even the person who really, really wanted them dies, the person who's left is the person who has the children. And he rises to the occasion and probably is a better father alone than he ever would have been with his wife, because he probably would have deferred to her completely and only cared about his career. But now that he is on his own with these small children, he devotes his life to them and um, and is a wonderful father in many ways. Race enters in here because I've neglected to say that the sons who are adopted are black. Right. The, the first son, they mm-hmm. have one natural-born son, Sullivan, and then they have a long series of miscarriages and a long series of, of frustrations adopting children, and the two little boys they wind up adopting are black, yes. And that must have been by choice. Did you want people to take a look at race then? Well, you know, the main thing that I was thinking about when I started that was I didn't want to have a moment in which the father has to sit down and tell the kids they're adopted. And so I wanted it to be a completely evident adoption, and obviously the easiest way to do that is with race. But... Yes, I mean, I think that for Bernadette, the mother, when she's wanting so much really to have a daughter, she really wants more children and she really wants a daughter, and the farther she goes down this road of losing pregnancy after pregnancy, she comes to the conclusion that it doesn't have to be a daughter, it doesn't have to be a redhead, it doesn't have to be a white child, it has to be a child. She wants more children, she wants more people to love, and that that is the, I think, true essential urge of parenting is that you don't want a particular person, you want someone else to love. You have a lot of love to give and you want more people in your family. Family is a, uh, the broad sense of family seems to be a theme that you come back to often in an interview, which by the way is included in this uh, paperback edition of the novel Run. Your definition of family, at least that you're trying to write here, is broader than what we might call the nuclear family. I think that's true. Um, I 
continually try to get away from writing about family, and then I finish a book, and I think, oh, I've done it again. In fact, I just finished a novel, and I think I have yet again come back to family. I do have a very broad definition of family. My parents were divorced when I was very young, and my mother remarried someone who had four children, and um, there was just a tremendous amount of of blend in my life growing up. There was a period of time I grew up with my stepfather's cousins. Um, my stepmother, my father's second wife, is someone who I love probably more than anyone I know. Um, so I think that based on my own personal experience, although I don't write particularly autobiographical fiction, I think that I was really influenced by that and the idea that that the people in your life can be your family, even if you don't share DNA with them. Back to you uh, in this interview, say you're, you come back in time and again to uh, the Magic Mountain, that sort of a situation. Yes, that's a Thomas Mann novel from the 1910s, and it was a book that I first read in high school, although I've read it several times since then. It's a giant German novel. It's very slow. It's very boring. I loved it. I have a very high tolerance for boring novels. And... In that book, uh, a young man named Hans Kastorp goes to visit his cousin in a tuberculosis sanatorium, and he winds up staying for years. They tell him that he has tuberculosis, too. And everybody just sits around and eats soup and takes naps and has long conversations, and they're stuck in this building for years. And that thematically is something that I come back to. My novels tend to be claustrophobic. Run takes place in a giant snowstorm. Nobody can get anywhere. Nobody can get out. Belcanto takes place in a hostage crisis in South America. For the entire book, all of the characters are held in one house. So again and again, I keep coming back, even though I try not to, to people getting stuck together in one place and then forming not just a family, but a, a society, a political structure. And in this interview, you talk about our responsibility to those around us as a, you know, part of a larger family responsibility. That, and you think maybe that that's been lost. Well, I, I don't know that it's been lost, but I think that it's something that deserves to constantly have attention drawn to it. I think that when people think about family values, they think about, again, their own DNA, taking care of the people in their family. And I would like to expand, extend the concept of family values to community values and to say we really are responsible for one another. And, you know, if your neighbor has a problem, then you need to get over there and help your neighbor. And, and that is the basis of politics as well, not shutting doors, not staking out camps, but finding ways in which we can share our strengths and be responsible for one another. I wanted to talk a little bit about the timeline here. And you've written elsewhere, been interviewed elsewhere, saying that Belcanto is about the suspension of time. Yes. Which you say is it's, it's hard to do, to, hard to write. Uh, the suspension it it is, because time is such a motivating factor in a narrative. Characters progress forward. And in Belcanto, they just kind of go in circles. They're being held hostage. They give their watches away. There's a terrible fog. They don't really know what time of day it is, and and the time doesn't propel them forward. And it drove me crazy to write that book 
So when I wrote Run, I thought, I want to write a book that essentially takes place in 24 hours. There's a very brief scene at the beginning and the end that take place outside of that 24-hour period. The rest of the book takes place in 24 hours. And um, it was wonderful because time was, was such a compelling part of the narrative. And I think when I think about what I want to do in the future, now I would really like to write a book that follows a single character from birth to death. Having written a book in 24 hours, I would like to expand a book over the entire arc of a character's life. Oh, interesting. Is that um, likely? Um, well, I think it is probably likely, and I have been looking hard for contemporary novels that do this, and I have been able to find very few, and the best one is a book that was written by Carol Shields called The Stone Diaries, which won the Pulitzer Prize in 1993, a terrific example of a birth-to-death novel. Back to politics, did you research politics and writing, because it was going to be a major theme in this book. Did you do research in that area? I did. I read a lot about Boston politics, um, and I read a lot about Tip O'Neill. I don't know why. I got very interested in Tip O'Neill. I got very interested, of course, in the Kennedys. But the great fun of the politics in that novel is that one of the characters, Teddy, one of the three sons, has a little bit of an obsessive-compulsive disorder in that he memorizes political speeches, and he can't stop repeating them all the time, and sometimes not entirely at appropriate moments. When I was a small child, my father used to make us memorize poetry, and I can remember so many poems that I memorized when I was five years old. And so Bernard Doyle has his sons memorize political speeches when they're children, but Teddy just never stops. And that was fantastic. I read so many books of political speeches, and then I would copy out my favorite ones, and then any time there was a scene where Teddy had a chance to throw in a speech, I would go through my notes and find the right speech for the occasion and put it in the book. There's an interesting part of this book that's been uh, much commented on. In fact, you uh, wrote a, a little essay that appears in the back of this paperback edition of the book, and that's a sign in a window, which uh, yes. appears in the book, Obama 2012. Right. When I was doing research, a lot of this book is set at Harvard, and I was doing research for the book, and I kept going back to Cambridge, uh, going to the Kennedy Center where the book opens, and every time I went back to the Kennedy Center, over the course of probably a year and a half, there was a sign in a window across the street that said Obama 2012. Every letter and number on a separate sheet of typing paper in a row of windows that went probably on the third floor. And at that point, I can't remember how long ago this was, but it was before Obama spoke at the Democratic Convention. I mean, it was really just about the first time I'd ever heard of Obama. He had just become a senator. And I kept thinking how idealistic that was, and, and someone was really thinking about the future to, say, 2012, because at this point it's probably 2004. I mean, I, I can't even remember, but it was it was a long way out. It was There was plenty of time to say Obama... 2008, but but back then nobody would have thought Obama 2008. So by the time the book was going to press, let's see, when the book was going to press, 
Obama had not yet won the nomination. We didn't know if it was going to be Obama or Clinton. And everybody was saying to me, my editor, my publisher, everyone said, you know, you can change the sign to Obama 2008. And I couldn't. It was a funny thing. I felt a strange sense of loyalty to whoever had put that sign up in the window, and I wanted to keep it as their vision. And I thought, if Obama wins in 2008, he'll still run for 2012. And if he doesn't win in 2008, he would probably still run in 2012. So I decided to leave the sign the way I found it. And you said, as you discovered Obama through maybe through that sign others maybe did yes probably so yeah that street corner got a lot of traffic in cambridge (laughs) and to this day you don't know who put that up no i don't and i have often thought um if i was a person who had any sort of electronic media connection probably somebody would tell me but i'm not a i don't i'm not on facebook and it's interesting you've mentioned my website i've never actually looked at my website because my (laughs) publisher does that i'm I'm a bit of a technophobe, mm-hmm. so um, there's probably all sorts of information out there. I just don't have access to it. <laughs> it's very well done, by the way. It's, it's, it's a nice website. Oh, good. Thank you. I'm glad yeah. to hear it. We're talking with Ann Patchett, who's author most recently of Run, author of Belcanto and uh, several other novels and a memoir, including The Magician's Assistant and Taft and Patron Saint of Liars. And uh, the memoir is Truth and Beauty, a Friendship. And the new book is What Now? It's a a book based on a commencement address to Sarah Lawrence that uh, Ann Patchett gave. And we appreciate you listening to Axis Utah. We'll have more with Ann Patchett following this. Calling all artists, designers, bird, and native plant lovers. The deadline for the Utah Public Radio and Bridgerland Audubon Society Grow Native for Birds Bookmark Art Contest has been extended. You now have until October 13th to submit your best design celebrating the beauty of Utah's native plants and the many wild birds that rely on them. Your vote will decide the winning design and it will be printed on an educational bookmark. For more details, go to upr.org and to submit, just send your design to katie.swain at usu.edu. What is climate change? How is it affecting our lives? And what can we do about it? We'll connect the dots from energy to extreme weather, public health, the economy, agriculture, and more. Catch Climate Connections weekday mornings at 549 and 849 on Morning Edition and afternoons at 348 during All Things Considered here on Utah Public Radio. We reached our last segment now with Ann Patchett. And this is a uh, conversation from 2010 on the occasion of the paperback release of her novel, Run. Uh, You can find Ann Patchett, by the way, at annpatchett.com. I wanted to talk just a little bit more about that sign. This is an interesting dilemma, I'm sure, sometimes for writers. You want your work to be grounded in a particular time and place, otherwise they'll just float away, I guess, unless you're writing, you know, fantasy. On the other hand, you don't want to be too dated. Is that something you go back and forth with? It's true. I do really think about that. Or you make these weird mistakes. Um, for example, in my first book, Patron Saint of Liars, the main character's last name is Clinton. Well, that book was written long before 
the President Clinton. I had never heard of Governor Clinton of Arkansas. I didn't, I mean, the name meant nothing to me. I, I literally took it out of the phone book. But now I think it seems so strange. It would be like writing a book in which the main character's name was Roosevelt or something. Um, you know, we bring so many associations to it. So you want to walk a line between taking responsibility for your time. You don't want to just write a fantasy book and have it set entirely outside of time or society. Um, But at the same time, you don't want to become so mired down in the facts of your days and the details of the present moment that your work does become dated. And uh, there are specific details, of course, including actual figures. And the Doyles are coming out of a Jesse Jackson lecture, right? And that's right. That's when this key argument happens and the plot goes from there. That's just one example. Exactly. There are a couple of real people in this book. And Doyle, who is a Boston politician and the former mayor of Boston, names his two adopted sons, Teddy and Tip, which I thought was the most obvious thing in the world. A a Boston politician would name his two boys after Teddy Kennedy and Tip O'Neill. But you get readers who are of a certain age, and they have no idea who Teddy Kennedy and Tip O'Neill are. A lot of universities have used this book as the incoming freshman read, and I've been to a lot of colleges and talked to countless thousands of young people about this book. It's kind of a wholesome book, and it's about taking responsibility, and it's a book that schools like to use. Um, And the kids have no idea who Tip O'Neill and Teddy Kennedy are, so they don't get the jokes either if you don't sort of pace it out right. Is that just something we, I don't know, we take in stride? Is that depressing? I don't know. I don't know how (laughs) we should take that. Yeah, yeah, they they don't (laughs) know these key historical figures. It's not just, I think, oh, I'm old, but I think, oh, you're not doing a good job in history. Yeah, certainly. But on the other hand, I wonder, I mean, I'm 46, and I would have to think, how many speakers of the House do I remember before Tip O'Neill? When I was growing up, it was Tip O'Neill was the Speaker of the House forever. Uh, that's that's true, yeah. And I'm trying to think of previous Speakers of the House as well. You know, maybe people who have buildings named after them, like Sam Rayburn. But uh, Exactly, you know. exactly. So, you know, obviously there are a lot of political jokes out there I could miss as well. <laughs> that's right. The title... I understand you only came to the title kind of late in the writing process. It does have resonance and meanings on several levels, including the daughter, Kenya, loves to run. Yes, she is a running prodigy. And it's so funny to me because I thought this was such a great title. I couldn't believe that there wasn't already a book called Run. I was thrilled about that. It seemed to work on so many levels because there is a character who is obsessed with running, the physical act of running. It's about running for office. It's about running away from your family and your past and your responsibilities. It really seemed the perfect title, and it's only three letters, and I thought no one will ever forget it. They won't mess it up. Um, I have a book called The Magician's Assistant, and I don't think anyone's ever called it anything but The Sorcerer's Apprentice, <laughs> any time they've ever spoken to me about it. And and yet people would say, oh, I read your book, Ran, or I read your book, Gone. Um, it was great. Or they would say, why did you call your book Run? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so it's very hard to get a title that pleases everybody. Why did you pick this this love for Kenya? 
Well, Kenya was a great character. Um, she was just, she's a very can-do little girl. Um, she's, she's smart. She's resourceful. She is going through a very hard time. Her mother uh, is in the hospital and has been badly injured, and she, Kenya just sort of accidentally winds up with these people that she doesn't know, and she's she's brave and smart and I think a very admirable person. I think all of the characters in this book are essentially pretty good people, but they're self-involved and they're thinking very much about what they want for themselves. And I think that Kenya, Kenya is thinking about other people and looking out for other people and not just herself. I read in an interview, or heard in an interview, this is uh, interesting, you say, I am a professional imaginer. Yes, that's very true. And it's a very interesting point, going back to the beginning of our conversation about being out on tour and giving talks, and people always say to me, oh, well, you must be a runner. You couldn't possibly write about running unless you were a runner. You must be an opera singer. You must play piano. I had a character once who had a terrible case of shingles, and people will raise their hand and stand up and say, well, you must have had shingles. Nobody could write about shingles unless they had had them. And in fact, none of that's true. I have had none of those experiences. I I don't have children, and I write a lot about families and children. But if I was limited to my own experiences, I would write incredibly boring books that nobody would read. But if you rely on your imagination, then your possibilities are truly limitless. You can write about anything. You can write outside of your race, outside of your gender, outside of your class. And I believe so strongly that reading fiction is an empathetic act, that it it makes us compassionate people because it forces us to go into someone else's life and look at the world through their eyes and their circumstances. And I think that it's something that we should all develop in ourselves is that empathy and compassion for other people. And I think the way we get that is by imagining other people's lives. Do you think about that then as a writer, that the reading is an empathetic act? Do you try to write that way? Yes, I do. I try to write outside of my own experiences, and I try to use it as an exercise to get into other people's minds and other people's lives um, and into worlds that I would never have. The book that I just finished writing, which is called State of Wonder, and it's about malaria and the Amazon. And, I mean, there are snakes and bugs and scientists marching through the jungle looking for new drugs and um, things that I'll never never will happen to me. I'll never have those experiences. But through my imagination, I get to travel. I get to go anywhere, which I think is what Eudora Welty did. I want to just uh, make a brief reference to What Now? This is sure. uh, based on a commencement speech at Sarah Lawrence. That's your alma mater, right? Yes. And just reading from the blurb for it, when you don't know what's coming next, you can still believe that life is full of infinite possibilities. Mm-hmm. That's what you were trying to get across to the... Uh, to the graduates? Well, I think that the main point that I was trying to make was there's a fine balance between going out and getting what you want, and I think that's important. It's important to have goals and purpose and direction, 
But at the same time, you have to accept that life happens in that process. And we may set off for a goal, and it's important to keep our eye on that goal, but at the same time, it's important to be open-minded and realize that on the way, you may take a detour that will lead you to something that you never even knew you wanted. And that whole book was such a funny experience for me because I do a graduation speech here and there, commencement, um, convocation, as most writers do. And I was very happy to go back to my old alma mater and do this. And um, it was posted on a website. And about a year later, a publisher approached me about making it into a book. And it wasn't anything I had ever planned. It was such an accidental book. But they did a beautiful job. They put pictures in it and you know, made it a great little gift package. And it's been very nice. But it's funny when people mention it, I, I kind of forget that I wrote it because unlike my other books that I really sat down and worked on so hard, this one happened almost without thought. I'm thinking of something that you said. I heard the writing process, every book gets harder. Well, in a lot of ways, every book does get harder because because you get older. I get, I should say, I get older and I read more, and I am more aware of how many fantastic books there are out there, and I'm more aware of how little time people have, and it's very important to me to really feel like this book matters. I want to take several days out of your life and have your attention and have you read what I have to say because I don't want to just take up people's time. I think that when you're young, you just feel like everything that you have to say is so important and matters so much and you could write about anything and it would matter. But as you get older, you start to think, no, I mean, this has really, really got to be important if I'm going to put it in a book and ask people to spend their money and their time to listen to a story that I want to tell. So in that way, it gets harder. It gets easier in terms of my work habits get better. I am a very good finisher, so I know that once I start something, I'll finish it. I understand myself better as time goes on, and I, that makes the work easier. You say you read more than you did perhaps when you were younger. What, what kinds of things do you read? I read all over the place. <laughs> I read I read classics. I read a lot of Henry James, um, Dickens, um, things that I think, oh, I should have read that when I was in college. I'm always picking up some old book that I feel like everybody else read, but I still want to read. I read books that are new and just coming out that publishers send to me all the time. I read things for research, for the work that I'm doing. I'm reading my friends' books because my, most of my friends are writers. And I read books that people recommend to me. I was on vacation a couple of weeks ago on Block Island. My husband and I were traveling with another couple. And the wife of the other couple is a writer named Miley Malloy, who's an amazing writer. And we were in a tiny used bookstore it had two shelves, and it was the kind of place where people dumped off their vacation reading and bought a new Stephen King novel. And she picked up this little novel that was published in 1986 called The All of It by Jeanette Hain. And she said, oh, I can't believe they have this. I haven't seen this book in years. And she bought it for me, and it was terribly mildewed. I had sneezed the whole time I was reading it. <laughs> 
but it was one of the best books I've read in years. And it felt just like such an incredible gift. It, it almost made the whole vacation worthwhile. It was a great vacation, but it was the highlight of it to have found this mildewy little book that was so brilliant. And that's kind of the great joy of my life, to find a book and think, oh, I could have missed this, and it's so good. What's the name of it again? It's called The All of It, and the author's name is Jeanette Hain, and it's H-A-I-E-N. She's dead. She died a couple of years ago in her 80s. She wrote this book late in her life. She was a pianist, you know, just crazy. I'd never heard of her. Tiny book, genius. Yeah, those are treasures to discover those. They really are, and it's so thrilling. I'm such a reader, and I get so excited about a good book. And part of what's so exciting is then I came home, I bought 10 copies of it, and I gave it to my family and friends. And it's because it's a little book and you can read it in a day, people have just been calling me and saying, oh, thank you, this is such a great gift. Just a couple more questions or down to the end of time. I want to follow up. Uh, Henry James, what, I guess you go back to him. What, uh, what is it about Henry James? I love Henry James. Um, my best friend is my lawyer, who's retired now. And about six years ago, we started reading Henry James together. He lives in New York, and we talk about different books over the phone. We read them over and over again. I had never read Henry James before. And um, I said earlier in this conversation, I have a very high threshold for boring work. And a lot of people would think of Henry James as boring. It's very, very quiet. It moves very slowly. But it's like deep sea diving. You just go into a whole other world with these books, and they're so all-encompassing. And it's nothing, nothing like the way I write. It's nothing like the way I think. But I really do feel that I have seen an entirely different life when I go into those books. They're, they're so moving to me, so beautiful. And you say you read your friends, and, and I happen to know some of your friends. We would know their names. Uh, Well, as I said earlier, my friend Liz Gilbert and her great new book, Commitment. Um, Susan Orlean is a friend of mine who wrote The Orchid Thief, and she is finishing up the biography of Rin Tin Tin right now, which I'm very excited about that. Jane Hamilton and Donna Tartt and Elizabeth McCracken and Kevin Wilson. And I just, the thing about writers, I mean, in the same way my husband is a doctor and his friends are doctors, I'm a writer and my friends are writers. And a lot of times with these books, I've read many drafts by the time they're finished, and they have read many drafts of my books. Miley Malloy, who I just mentioned, her last book was a collection of short stories called Both Ways is the Only Way I Want It, which I think is the best title I've ever heard. (laughs) And um, she was tremendously helpful to me when I was working on this last book I just finished. And it's great to have a friend who you can say, I know you already read this, but I need you to read it again and tell me if it's better or worse. Finally, uh, you've talked about the, the new book. Is that nearing completion? Yes. And what is it called again? It's called State of Wonder, and actually I have spent the whole morning going over the copy editing, uh, which is the very last stage when someone is fixing your commas and your punctuation and catching typos. 
So it's really finished. After this, I'll proofread it one more time, and then I am done. So it, that's a nice place to be. Yeah, state of wonder. Any uh, pique our interest? What's 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 it about? One sentence. Um, uh, it, malaria and the Amazon and everlasting fertility. It's about a woman who discovers a tribe in which the women can get pregnant forever. Is that a horrifying thought? (laughs) So they have a bunch of women in their 80s who are still having children, but as it turns out, they also never get malaria. So in discovering one drug, they also discover another. Well, it certainly piques the interest, so that'll be out soon. And uh, anything in the pipeline after that? Well, I'd like to write a novel from birth to death, Mm -hmm. and actually I am working on a collection of essays, which is fun. I have written for magazines my whole life and anthologies, and I've written... I've written for everything. When I was in my 20s, I wrote for Seventeen and Bridal Guide and Glamour and lots of junky fashion magazines. And then as the years have gone on, I've written for Harper's and The Atlantic and The New York Times. And so um, I'm putting together a collection of essays, which should be a lot of fun. Very good. We'll look for all those. We've been talking with Ann Patchett, author most recently of Run, a new novel. She's the author of... Belcanto and uh, Taft, the magician's assistant, patron saint of liars, a memoir, Truth and Beauty, a friendship, a new book based on a commencement address, so What Now, and uh, a couple of new works to be coming out. And Patchett, it's been a pleasure. It's written great. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. And thanks for listening to Access Utah today. Our thanks to Ann Patcher. By the way, annpatcher.com is the place to go. Tomorrow we'll uh, talk with a... Uh, uh, writer here in Logan, teaches at Utah State University. Ashley Wells is her name. We'll talk about her book, The Cowgirl and the Racehorse, which offers a moving, intimate, and richly descriptive. Uh, it's a memoir on the relationship between a girl and her horses. Beginning with a traumatic horse riding accident, she reflects on personalities and characters of many horses, both real and fictional, who've accompanied her through often difficult life experiences. That's tomorrow. Hope you joined us. Thanks for listening. listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.